Uh, scripture reading is going to be Psalm 72, and if you would open there with me, that would be great. This psalm is going to set us up very well for what we're going to be seeing this morning and in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Who am I kidding? In the years ahead. <laughs> we're going to be in Psalm 72, and then we'll pray. Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace, until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy, and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain on the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the Lord God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things, and blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. These are the words of God. And I forgot to ask you to stand. We're, we're, it's all of grace. You just remind me next time. <laughs> okay, well, if you would join me, we're going to pray together. O oh Lord God, as we've just read in the psalm, blessed be your name. We see in this psalm of Solomon, we see the greater David, our Savior Jesus Christ, who reigns forever. We see him and we see a tender Savior, a Savior who is strong in his might, perfect in his reign, great in his power, gracious to his people, tender in his love and exactly the kind of king that we long for. Thank you. Lord, as we are in this new year, we thank you for the many blessings that you intend to pour out on us. And Lord, we look ahead with anticipation to what you will do, knowing that all things are in your hand and that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we look back to a difficult year, 
And we thank you for your grace and peace in bringing us through that year of pain and trial. Lord, for all that has gone on in Sylvania Church, for all that has gone on in the lives of the saints, in their families, with their loved ones. We pray for comfort for those who are going through a season of grief and sorrow, who are dealing with pains and burdens that perhaps they have not shared with others, or perhaps only with a few. Pains and griefs that you yourself know fully. Lord Jesus, you are called the man of sorrows. You are acquainted with grief, and you bear our sorrows and griefs to the uttermost in your love. We pray, Lord, for repentance and restoration for those who are wandering in sin. We pray that you would bring them back in the tenderness of their Savior, that you would guide them and correct them through the rod of your word and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that for those who are repentant, that they would find refuge in Christ and that the peace of the gospel would wash over them and guard them from the guilt and shame that the tempter would so often heap upon them. Lord, we thank you for Sylvania Church, for the work that you are doing through us, for the work that you desire to do. We know that we are one among many of your faithful churches in Tyler, and yet there are many people in this city who do not know you. We ask that you would use Sylvania for your glory and fame here and in Texas, in our country, and to the ends of the earth, for this is your good pleasure. To that end, we pray that you would minister to and through and protect those who have gone away from us as missionaries, those that we support as missionaries who are not from our congregation. We pray, Lord, over those who are spreading your gospel with whom we partner. We pray that you would protect them from the evil one, that you would protect them from all that would harm them, that you would use them, that your Holy Spirit would go before the word of the gospel, that it would be honored in the hearts of the lost as you draw sinners to yourself. And now as we open your word together, we expect your joyful and good ministry among us and pray for this, that we would have open hearts and ready minds. And as Paul prayed, we ask that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened and that we may know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your mighty power which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in glory. Come, Lord Jesus, among us is our hope. Amen. Well, for anyone who's wondering, uh, my family and I have not moved yet. Moving trucks are scheduled. A trip has been planned. Lord willing, we'll be able to make it to Tyler for good in February, and I treasure your prayers for a safe journey and gracious farewells, and that this weather would be an anomaly. So, that's the thing. It's like, hey, finally made it out of the Northwest, and I'm back, so. But that was because the elders thought that it would be a good idea for me to afflict you with my preaching for a couple weekends in January, and in the Lord's providence, it's only this one, because my flights were canceled last Saturday, and I couldn't get down till Monday, though I tried my best. I'm grateful to the elders for their graciousness with all that. I'm especially grateful to Shane for... Um, abandoning his family on that Saturday on a fly to be able to minister to you. What a great sermon. I watched that. I watched it live. I'm grateful for my fellow elders. Um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you how generously the Lord has blessed you with faithful and godly leaders. And I am honored to be joining that team and to be a part of this precious church. And so a big question that gets asked when the Lord calls a man to the pulpit is, what are you going to preach? 
And I've been asked that question many times already. And I knew before I knew that I was coming to Sylvania that the answer was going to be the gospel according to Matthew. What I never expected, though, was that I would have to begin that sermon series by giving a defense about why I'm going to preach Matthew. And a defense I do need to make, because I found out quickly, after giving that answer for the first time, that there are like three, at least, Sunday school classes going through Matthew. And so, I mean, why on earth would I expect to have to give a defense of expositionally preaching through a book of the Bible? But I do. And so here goes. Um, I know some of you in those classes may be thinking, couldn't we get a little something fresher to us than Matthew for the first sermon series? Um, But I think that we as a church will be richly blessed. And perhaps in the next few moments, I'll convince some of you who are in those Matthew classes not to mentally check out during the next several months because you've been there and done that. And so as I give this apologetic, my first defense for why I'm preaching Matthew, okay, cause, and, I, and I know I need to because nobody was like, sweet, nobody said amen when I told you that. And so I will tell you, preaching and teaching are similar, but they are not the same. Preaching and teaching are similar, but they are not the same. How do I know? Thank you. Yes, and that was a plea. Neil's like, please preach it. Don't teach it. Mark. Oh, see, Neil's right there. He's going to (laughs) get... I'll do that again. All right. So, Jesus, Matthew 11.1. It says, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So Matthew uses two words side by side, teach and preach. And underneath our English words, the word teach focuses on instruction and it aims at understanding. The mind is particularly in view. And of course, when Jesus is teaching, he not only wants his learners to understand, of course, he wants them to live in light of what they understand. And of course, with biblical teaching, that's always the case. But preaching, the word underneath preaching, gets at proclamation, and it aims at transformation, and the heart is in view. And so teaching aims at the mind and and the understanding. Preaching aims at transformation and the heart. They're related because we want all of God's word to transform us, whether through teaching or preaching, but preaching has a special urgency to it that oftentimes teaching, by the nature of it, may not. And I'm certain that every Sunday school teacher who's been working through Matthew desires the very same thing. So please don't see me preaching through Matthew as in competition or contrast to those who are teaching through it. Rather, we're working together. We're working together in tandem. And due to the differences between preaching and teaching, we may be working with the same book, with Matthew, but there will be different emphases, different approaches, and, as, and we as a congregation will have a different experience than we would in any given class. Okay? And besides, there's many people who aren't in a Matthew class, including our children, which is like half the church. So at least statistically, we should be okay with this. Right? My second defense for preaching Matthew is that with God's help, I want to build my ministry at Sylvania Church on the whole Bible. And really, Matthew is the bridge of the whole Bible. It's my way of getting everything while taking one thing. In Matthew, we get deep into the Old Covenant, and we see how with the coming of Christ, we get brought into the New Covenant. And we hearken back to the creation of the world through Jesus, and then we see with Jesus the inauguration of the new creation. We move from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. We get all the major doctrines of the Christian faith 
from the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture to the doctrine of the church and the last things. We get the doctrines of grace and salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We see every major theme and character of Scripture finding fulfillment in Jesus, which is what that last song was all about. So I couldn't think of a better book to build many years of preaching on than Matthew. Third, every part of our lives and our hearts are laid open before God in the book of Matthew. My favorite definition of theology, and I'll probably refer to this many times in years to come, my favorite definition of theology from one of my favorite theologians, John Frame, is that theology is the application of God's revelation to all of life. Theology is the application of God's revelation to all of life. And there isn't one detail of our life that isn't claimed by Jesus Christ the Lord. And Paul tells us that all scripture is useful for all of life. And in Matthew particularly, Jesus gets into every corner of our lives, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and teaches us to live as the people of his kingdom and what it means to have him as our king. So, we're going to get specific, not just general. And that's because Matthew does. Another reason I don't mind preaching Matthew while we have some classes going on is that though y'all are far into Matthew at this point, by the time we get there in our sermons, you're not going to remember where you've been. (laughs) It's just human nature. You will have been changed by it. You will know more than you realize you did. But you're going to need a refresher. And so will I. Um, Expository preaching tends to take its time. So wherever you're studying today, it won't feel all that recent by the time we get there. So really, you can just breathe a sigh of relief. And finally, because I know that acknowledging that fact that it takes some time is going to cause some anxiety for somebody, I just want to let you know that I plan to preach in cycles, uh, which I think will help us avoid feeling bogged down in any one place for an extended period of time. So again, all the Bible is precious. All of it is fruitful for a lifetime of meditation and study. But I think all of us could agree that spending years and years in one particular place can leave us maybe feeling like there's so much of God's good word that we're not going to encounter for a while. And so I plan to do, with God's help, what a Presbyterian friend of mine does in his preaching, which is to spend part of the year in the New Testament, then spend part of the year in the Old Testament, to take a couple of weeks to look at the passion of Christ around Easter time in particular and the resurrection and then end the year with some kind of an Advent series, and then get back into Matthew. And so, that being the case, we'll be in Matthew for the lion's share of this year, and then go to the Old Testament for a while, late summer or the beginning of fall, end the year with an Advent series, and come back to Matthew in January of 2025, Lord willing. So, there it is. That's all you're getting. From here on out, I apologize to no one. We're just going to go to it. And this is on record, so you can just go back and watch it if you need to remember why we're doing it. All right, so I hope I've made my case well enough for preaching Matthew. But before we can get into the book itself, we need to see the whole book and what's going on. Or put another way, we need to see the forest before we can look at the trees, right? We need to take the forest before the trees. And so we're going to get a big picture overview of what's going on with Matthew. That's going to set us up for understanding what Matthew's doing. So we'll start naturally with the author. Now this may come as a shock to you, and this wasn't in my interview questions, so someone may not know that I think this. But I believe that the evidence for who wrote Matthew points generously toward 
Matthew. I know, it's a shock. But in all seriousness, we actually need to say it. Because the majority viewpoint of those outside evangelicalism is that Matthew was not written by Matthew. It was written by an anonymous author who heists Matthew's name to give credibility to his gospel. And there we have it. That's the majority viewpoint outside of those who hold that the scriptures are inerrant. And certainly, Matthew doesn't identify himself by name in the book. So it's not a matter of inerrancy necessarily, whether you think Matthew wrote it or not. But I want to to suggest to you that we're standing on solid ground, both biblically and historically, for insisting that Matthew really did write the gospel that bears his name. If you would open with me to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, We'll look at verse 9 through 13 and the calling of Matthew. And this is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So beginning in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table... Uh, in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke's record of this moment tells us that Matthew's name was also Levi. And that's also the name that Mark uses in his record of this very same moment. So Luke and Mark refer to Matthew as Levi, and Matthew alone here in recording his calling refers to himself as Matthew. And that's a clue for us, this name change. It's often thought that just as Jesus lovingly gave Simon the name Peter, which means rock, that Jesus gave Levi the name Matthew, which means gift of the Lord. So a hint about who may have wrote this is that the author uses this new name, and if it is Matthew doing that, it adds a personal touch of tenderness as he's reflecting on his call from Jesus out of darkness and into light. Another clue for us to Matthew's authorship is the fact that from the early church all the way into the 19th century, can mark that, that's like 1,800 years, the church agreed Matthew wrote that book. That's kind of significant. No one questioned who wrote it. It's almost certain that the Gospels originally circulated with some kind of title identifying their authors and distinguishing them among themselves. Okay? There's a reason the witness to Matthew goes all the way back to the earliest accounts in church history. Early copies bore Matthew's name. There's no question as to who wrote it until the beginning of higher criticism, post-enlightenment. As people began to deconstruct the Bible and think that they knew better than the primitive church before we got, you know, to the Enlightenment. So um, if you're ever in a place where somebody suggests, like, maybe deconstructing the Bible, don't do it. Okay, that's kind of Proverbs 1, right, son? Don't go with them in the way. It's not going to go well for you. So, I believe our author is Matthew, who we see from his calling was a tax collector, one of the most despised Jews, 
The, the Jews would look on tax collectors as blood traders, really, because they would sell themselves to Rome at the sake of their countrymen. They would become rich while their already struggling brothers and sisters became poor, became poorer. And so, now this is significant. The authorship of this gospel in and of itself screams the grace of God. It preaches the grace of God in Christ. Because the whole reason Jesus came, as we see here in Matthew's calling, is to save sinners. And when he saves sinners, he saves sinners. He doesn't, he doesn't save the shiny people with a little dirt on them. He saves those who are rotten to the core, and he makes them new. Matthew knows that. He was one of them. So were we. All this because the Father decreed it in love, the Son came and died in love, and the Spirit applied that redemption in love. That's what the authorship of Matthew suggests to us. And we're just getting started. Well, when was it written? Let's look at the date. All we know for sure was that it was written sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Probably in the 50s, maybe the early 60s at the latest. And again, this almost unanimous witness of the church up through the mid-1800s is that Matthew was the first gospel written. Now, today, even among those who hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, that's a minority viewpoint. Most people believe that Mark wrote first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark and then did their own thing on top of it to, to write their gospels. Personally, I'm not convinced by that. I think um, there needs to be pretty overwhelming evidence to say that the church was mistaken for about 1,800 years. However, um, that's not a hill to die on. Okay? I think the arguments against Matthew basing his gospel on Mark are at least as compelling as the arguments that he based it on Mark and that Mark came first. But that's a great discussion for a class. And I'm not teaching through Matthew. So that's where I'm going to leave it. My fellow nerds can go do their own investigating. All right. So the main thing to know is that Matthew wrote well before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. How do we know? Well, because look at how prominently the temple fig figures into this gospel. I mean, we have the Olivet Discourse looking at the temple and what's going to go on there. We have other allusions and references to the temple. The temple is quite an important part of this gospel, suggesting that it was still there when Matthew wrote as to Matthew's intended audience, we know two things for sure. The first is that Matthew is the most Jewish gospel written, okay? which simply means he focuses a lot on the Old Testament scriptures, particularly on how Jesus fulfills them. Okay? He does so because he wants us, or rather his Jewish readers, to know that Jesus really is their Messiah. He's the one that those scriptures were pointing to. He is the greater David that the Jews had expected, longed for, and desired. He is the fulfillment of the Jewish Bible. But, I don't know everybody here, but I would venture to say that those of Jewish ancestry in this room are probably uh, on the lower side of the demographic. Good news. Matthew really cares about Gentiles. Matthew really cares about Gentiles and their inclusion in the kingdom of God. So time after time, we see Gentiles pop up surprisingly in the story of this very Jewish gospel, beginning with the inclusion of Gentile women in Jesus's genealogy. And then the first recorded worshipers in Matthew are Gentile wise men who come from a very pagan East and fall at the feet of Jesus. 
when his own people don't see him. In Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, you don't need to go there, I'll just read this for you. He, he brings us back to Isaiah and he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends victory forth and uh, till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. Okay? So Matthew does what the gospel does. He aims for Jews first and then also for Gentiles. Okay? And that's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans 1 is how the gospel works. It was to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. And in this very first gospel, that's what we see. So when we piece together all these prophetic fulfillments about Jesus, when we look at the events of Jesus' life, when we understand the Old Testament backdrop to the Gospel of Matthew and how he draws on that Old Testament to paint this glorious picture of our Lord, when we put all that together, we see Matthew's purpose come into focus. For those who are taking notes, I'm going to tell you what this purpose is twice, and then when you miss it, you can email me and I'll send it to you. Because full, full disclosure, it is a loaded purpose. But then again, Matthew is a loaded gospel. You get the whole Bible in one book. Here it is. I would say that Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the promise of Abraham, the greater David, the new Moses, the fullness of Israel who came to fulfill the Old Testament and save his people from both Israel and the nations. Okay, I'm going to say that again. What Matthew is doing in these 28 chapters is he's presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Son of God, the promise of Abraham, the greater David, the new Moses, the fullness of Israel, who came to fulfill the Old Testament and save his people from Israel and the nations. And when you realize that that's Matthew's purpose, you've already got a handle on his themes. Because those are his themes. Those are his themes. Jesus is the promised Messiah who is God with us. And we see that even from chapter 1 in his name, Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew shows that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, which we see in the Father's audible announcement at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And there, as the Spirit descends as a dove, we have this glorious Trinity coming into focus early on. Matthew traces out how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. I mean, isn't that what Psalm 72 said when we read it? That he would be blessed and he would be a blessing that hinges on the promise to Abraham. And in Matthew, Jesus is shown as the fulfillment of that promise, accomplished in Jesus' death and guaranteed in the Great Commission, where Matthew ends. And from the outset, another of Matthew's major themes is that Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus is David's greater son. And this factors so centrally into what Matthew is doing that it's going to come up over and over again. That's, that's why we started with Psalm 72 before we read 
uh, before we get into Matthew. Because it just sets it up so perfectly, because that's exactly the picture of Jesus that Matthew has. Now, this is neat. I mean, all that other stuff, that's really neat, too. But this, this is cool. One of the things that Matthew is doing throughout his gospel, and we have to look for it, and we will, okay, and woven into the fabric of Jesus' life is that Jesus is the true Israelite. He is the true Israelite who is the fulfillment of Israel's history, which is why out of Egypt I called my son. Especially in those early chapters of Matthew, we see front-loaded these allusions and quotations back to what Israel has gone through as a nation because Israel's history in and of itself was calling for and finding fulfillment in Jesus. Israel's great characters, which again, that song, Moses, Isaac, David, Abraham, those things that we rehearsed to one another with music this morning, we see Jesus as that. Okay? This is too big of a theme to get into now, but it will come up often and will gain a new level of wonder for the unity and amazing precision of Scripture. With Scripture like that, is, of course it's inerrant. Of course it's infallible, because only God could pull that off. J.K. Rowling, playing with, uh, you know, playing with mud pies, as Lewis says, we've got the riches. I'm a Potter fan, don't worry. It's all right. <laughs> now, Matthew's also keen to show us that Jesus is the new Moses. Again and again, we see Moses' life and ministry as a type that points forward to the one who leads us out of bondage to sin in a new exodus, not from Egypt, but from the judgment of God and slavery and condemnation. And we'll see again how Jesus gathers Jews and Gentiles in himself to become the new and true Israel that the old covenant nation anticipated and foreshadowed. So Gentile wise men come and worship him. He forms his church from 12 apostles, think 12 tribes. And then he sends his Jewish and Gentile church into all the world to gather exiles through the gospel from all nations. Because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a kingdom for his own possession, right? a new people that he has made. All the stories are true. And all the stories come to a point here. And the story finds its glorious conclusion as all of that looks again for the return of Jesus when he will make all things new. So truly, Matthew is such a profound, multi-layered book. So it's going to be a treat, I hope, to hear the Lord through his word in Matthew as we gather in worship in the coming days, months, and years. And there's a lot packed into Matthew. And so obviously the outline is complex. But I'm going to make it simple. And for those who really want to get detailed, you're going to be frustrated with me. But that's okay. Okay, here's the thing. There's no agreement among New Testament scholars as to what Matthew's outline is. Right? There's no one outline that people go, well, yep, yeah, that's obviously what's going on here. Okay? So, there is a little leeway. However, something that almost everybody agrees on is that Matthew organizes his material around five teaching blocks, okay? five discourses. These include the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sending out his disciples, parables of the kingdom, relationships of believers to one another, especially focusing on forgiveness and restoration, and then the Olivet Discourse. Now, because of how intent Matthew is to show that Jesus is the new Moses, 
It may very well be that Matthew is doing this to kind of make an allusion to the five books of Moses to show that Jesus, the new Moses, also gives five major teaching blocks in this book. We can't really say much beyond that, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Now, something else Matthew does is to mark major transitions in the book with the words, from that time, okay, from that time. The first use of that is in chapter 4 and verse 17, when we transition out of Jesus' early ministry to Jesus' long ministry in Galilee, which forms the first major chunk of Matthew's book. Okay. And then the second use is in Matthew 16, 21, shortly before Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem uh, and, and then begins to go there so that we can you know, have salvation. So these five discourses and these two transitions definitely play into Matthew's outline. But I don't necessarily think that they're the biggest part of Matthew's outline. I think that they're subsections of the big major outline. I think, I think what Matthew's doing, and this really builds off the work of several New Testament scholars, is I think he's giving us two major geographic breakdowns of Jesus' life and ministry. And so here's the outline that I would suggest to you, okay, that seems to me at least to make the most sense. First, you have the prologue in chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 17. In the prologue, we have Jesus' birth, we have his baptism, we have his temptation, which sets us up for the first major block of, uh, of Matthew, which is Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus' Galilean ministry. In chapter 4, verse 18, all the way through to the end of chapter 17. And that's a lot of chapters. There's a lot of things that go on there. Three of the five major discourses take place there while Jesus is teaching and ministering in Galilee. And then third, we have Jesus' journey to and ministry in Jerusalem. His journey to and ministry in Jerusalem. From the beginning of chapter 18 through chapter 25. And why did he go and minister there? Because of chapter 26 through most of 28. Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why he came. He should call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. How's he going to pull that off? He's going to die. Wait, Messiah's going to die? No, he's going to come and deliver us. Yeah, exactly. Keep reading. It will all be made clear. You can see why Matthew struggles with it so much. And as soon as he's called the rock upon which the church is going to be built, I wish it was Peter's confession. Peter himself wasn't the rock. We're not Roman Catholics. Um, Jesus turns to him, and the next thing he says, now this is actually kind of interesting. If Peter's the new pope, right, if he's the first pope there in Matthew 16, then what's the first thing that Jesus says to the first pope? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> of course they were confused. It didn't make sense. It was there, but Jesus had come to make it clear. And then finally in the epilogue, we have Jesus' commission, his commission that we would go and preach this gospel to all nations. Okay? We go and preach this gospel to all nations. Now, that's a pretty good overview of the broad strokes in Matthew. And if anybody wants um, the more detailed outline, like where do those discourses, the teaching and the story, the teaching and the story, where does all that come in? Feel free to email me and I'll send it to you. But those are the main overviews. Matthew's purpose, his themes, his outline. It, it makes sense to me why for the first few hundred years of church history, Matthew was the most popular gospel of the four. It's pretty awesome. And that sets us up beautifully to begin our actual look at Matthew. 
beginning with the first words of the book. So if you would, open back to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not going to tell you that all that was introduction and my sermon starts now. I'm not going to do that to you, okay, because that would be a lie. But it does help you to understand why I'm only taking half of verse 1 as my official sermon text for the day. It's not because I'm trying to go as slow as I can. It's because our time is running out, okay? Oh, and there's so much theologically loaded into that first half of the verse that we just don't have time to go beyond that. Okay, here we are. This is what we're looking at today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's our text. Okay? And like I said, um, I will very rarely take a few words as the whole sermon. But there we go. So what I want to do is I want to draw out two points here that paint one main idea. Two points that make one main idea. The main idea is that every strand of scripture meets in Jesus, whose advent is the dawn of the new creation. Every strand of scripture meets in Jesus, whose coming is the dawn of the new creation. So, here's our first theme. We're going to explore it through looking at two aspects. First, the idea of moving from creation to new creation, and then looking at the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Okay? Look, at, look at the first five words in our English translation of Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy. The book of the genealogy. These opening words serve as an introduction to what really amounts uh, to a title. Now, nobody has consensus on, is, is this the title of just the genealogy in chapter 1? Is it the title to the first couple of chapters, Jesus' birth and, and, and whatnot? Or is it a, a title to the whole book, spanning all the way through the Great Commission? I don't know. But what I do know is that it's setting the stage for everything that Matthew's going to do in these 28 chapters, whether it's a title or not. From Jesus' human ancestry and the genealogies, to his perfect life and his atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his great commission, all of it connects back to these five words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So what's really striking is how Matthew begins all this. These five English words, as Matthew wrote it, is actually just two. Biblos genesios. Biblos, and we hear book in that, don't we? But more to the point, genesios. What do you hear there? Genesis. Because that's what the word means. The book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew intends for that to bring us all the way back to the beginning. Okay? And if you're already in the early chapters of Genesis this year in your Bible reading plan, perhaps that brings to your mind Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Or perhaps Genesis 2.4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. Matthew's writing in Greek. Genesis was written in Hebrew. But when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek two to three hundred years before Jesus came, the translators used the exact same words as Matthew opens with to translate Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1. Matthew knows this. The apostles largely used that translation of the Old Testament as their Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And so Matthew, knowing that his readers are familiar with the Septuagint, that when he writes the book of the genealogy, Biblos Genesios, they're going somewhere mentally. And where they're going is Genesis, 
when God created all things. The New Testament authors use the Septuagint. Matthew does that to make a connection in our mind that the coming of Jesus is the dawning of the new creation. The Jews were well aware that the old creation wasn't the final creation. The last place we're going to go together this morning is Isaiah 65. And if you would turn there with me, that's the last place we'll turn together. Isaiah 65. Specifically, verse 17 through 20. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 20. So at the culmination of one of their greatest prophets, we read, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So we know that one day Christ is returning. We know that, right? Good. Good. We're not heretics. One day Christ is returning. And when he comes, we also know that there's no sin. There's no death. There's no suffering. All those things are cast into the lake of fire at the final judgment. When Jesus comes the second time, it's all gravy, baby. That's a southern thing. I had biscuits and gravy the other day, followed it up with ribs at Stanley's, and then that night had tacos. And I, and I thought, I've, I'm here. I've arrived. <laughs> that's, a, that's a Texas day right there. But despite my, meal on, my meals on Friday, um, we have not arrived yet. Right? Jesus is still coming back. But that doesn't mean the new creation in total waits for them, which is what Isaiah is talking about. Theologian Ken Gentry points out in commenting on Isaiah 65 that there is a pre-consummation aspect of this new creation. If Jesus coming back is the consummation, if that's what our hopes are pointed toward, are, are zoned in on, what Jesus has done now with his first coming is to begin that process before it arrives. That's the significance of the first advent. As described by Isaiah, this pre-consummation new creation, it grows in its blessings, right? And even our own sanctification testifies to this, right? We are not now the people we were five years ago as Christians. We have grown by the grace of God. The Christian life is a growing life. Well, the story of the cosmos, when Jesus comes, is a growing story, culminating in his consummation. This is the already and the not yet. Already, his blessings are flowing, and yet, there's still death and sin and suffering. Here, in this pre-consummation new creation, as Isaiah records it, children are still dying, but they die 100 years old, Isaiah is saying, and the old man uh, who dies at 100, and we think, well, that's, I've made it, I've made it to 100. It's like, okay, young buck, you know, in Isaiah's picture here. And it's painting this picture, not necessarily literally, but spiritually and really, that Jesus coming, it, it actually matters. It matters. 
This already and not yet tension is real. Already in Christ, Paul says, you are a new creation. And yet, 1 John 3 says, we do not yet, uh, we do not yet see him, so we are not yet what we will be. We're already new, but we're going to be made new. His coming has brought the new creation, but not like it will. And yet it's very true. It's very real. And all of it, the already and the not yet, centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Matthew wants us to know. Matthew is showing us this as he makes the connection between the creation account in Genesis and the coming of Christ to bring the new covenant age. The old creation began with the first Adam, but the new creation begins with the second Adam. The second Adam. The first Adam plunged us into ruin and misery and decay through sin. The second Adam comes to bring with him the dawn of the new age, the new creation. His people are being made new, being drawn, saved, transformed, and used by him to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth as people all around the world are made new and drawn and saved. Friends, consider the fact that from Jerusalem in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, we geographically are the ends of the earth. That's the other side of the world. It's going pretty well. It's going pretty well. And that's the kind of thing we read in Psalm 72. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He makes a new people in himself and then sends them to make other people new as the Holy Spirit applies the gospel. And the gates of hell right in the middle of Matthew, Jesus says, cannot stop the advance. The gates of hell. Whoever has gates here, that's not your self-defense weapon, right? You don't go and attack somebody with gates unless you're Samson, right? Gates are defensive. Hell is on the defense. Jesus has come. We are on the offense. That is good news. The way Matthew sets up Christ's coming with the genealogy that harkens back to Genesis shows us that from the opening pages of Scripture, every strand that runs through the Bible meets in Jesus, who is making all things new. So let me bring this home for you. What can you expect as we work our way through the Gospel of Matthew? You can expect to be changed. Not because of me or any sermon I could ever write, but because Jesus is here. And he doesn't leave you untouched because he loves you. If we get through Matthew unchanged as a church, we are in a bad way. But thanks be to God, every promise in Scripture is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have become new. You are new if you trust in Christ alone. So you can expect, as we open up Matthew together in the days ahead, to be shaken, to be startled, to be comforted, to be uncomfortable, to be loved to be transformed, because that's what Jesus does, and he rules us and loves us through his word. That's why I'm preaching Matthew. Which brings us to the final aspect of the first half of Matthew 1.1, the Lord's anointed. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The eternal son of God has a human name when he enters time in the incarnation, and that name is Jesus Christ. And these two words convey a world of truth, beginning with the meaning of Jesus, which is Yahweh saves. What's in a name? It's why he came. Yahweh saves. The coming of the Son of God is for the salvation of the world. 
He came to save us from our sins, and that's exactly what was promised all through Scripture from its earliest pages. So if Jesus is his personal name, Christ is his title. This shows that Jesus is God's answer to the messianic hope of Israel. Mired in a sin and darkness and oppression by foreign powers, Israel longed and looked for the one who would bring liberty and salvation. And by this point in time, they largely expected freedom from Rome and the restoration of their political kingdom. And what they got was so much better. Because they misunderstood their own story. It was never about political liberation. It was about spiritual liberation. It was about the whole world is yours through Christ, as Paul says. My mortgage agent hasn't gotten the memo. I still have to pay my mortgage, and I'm like, but the whole world is mine. But alas, not yet. Friends, the Christ has come. His name is Jesus, and things will never be the same. In these opening words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew previews for us what he's going to show over the course of 28 incredible chapters. Every strand of scripture meets in Jesus, whose coming is the dawn of the new creation. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are excited. We are excited because you are who you are. We give you praise because you are who you are. You reign together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God eternal, and you have come to make us new. Your death is our comfort, because in your death we have our salvation. Your resurrection is our hope, because in your resurrection we have new life. We thank you for just in the very opening words of the New Testament showing us that you have come to change us, you've come to save us, you have come to see through to the end what you began. You are coming again. Lord, as we walk in this world of sorrow, as we walk in this world of sin, as we, as we are frustrated with ourselves at how slow our progress is in, in, in becoming like you, comfort us with the knowledge that you are at work. May we fix our eyes upon you, looking for the change that you are working in us and calling it out generously in each other because we are the church and that's what we do. All of this from you, through you, to you, and for you. To you be the glory forever. Amen.